we had been looking uh, at 2 Timothy. So Titus is just one page over, and we're going to continue to look at the pastoral epistles. Um, in 2 Timothy, as we looked at it over the summer months, uh, we looked at some of the, the priorities of, of a gospel church, as Paul had laid them out for, for Timothy as he was in Ephesus. Now what I want to do is um, look now at Titus, and to continue on that process as we look at what Paul tells to Titus, who was in a, a similar kind of scenario. But let's uh, begin as we read uh, in Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses this morning. This very much is Paul's introduction to the letter, uh, and what I want to do today is try and get us a, a grasp of the whole kind of message of Titus before we look at it in more detail. So, first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and that his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Now, as I hinted at with the boys and girls, we, uh, we actually tried something new this year in our garden. Um, we bought uh, a cold frame greenhouse and we tried to grow tomatoes. Very interesting process growing tomatoes, uh, starting from the tiny seeds that we planted uh, on the windowsill in the house, seeing them germinate, begin to grow. Very long process, planted the seeds in March. Uh, the first batch died, uh, ended up having to go to Dobies and actually buy plants. Um, <laughs> We've made a few mistakes along the way. It's been a big learning curve. Uh, but now the tomato plants uh, are very big. They nearly fill the whole greenhouse that we bought. Um, but there had to be a but. There's a major problem with our tomatoes. They have produced very, very little fruit. For whatever reason, and I think I have many reasons, but for whatever reason, they haven't done very well this year. Uh, the whole process has been a bit of a disaster. For after all, is that not actually the whole point of growing tomatoes? It's to get the fruit, the tomato fruit. But that's not what we've got. The point of growing the tomato plant is to get fruit so that you can eat it, so that you can enjoy it. You spend all that time watering, feeding, caring, and there is a lot of time with tomato plants, watering and feeding. Um, and yet at the end, we haven't got any fruit for it. What was the point? And in many ways, the letter that Paul writes here to Titus, we could say, is about fruit. The fruit that the gospel produces in the lives of, on the lives of Christians. For paramount in, in Paul's mind, as he writes to Titus in Crete, and into a society that was renowned for its ungodliness, was that the true teaching of the gospel has such an impact on the lives of believers that it produces godliness or good works. That seems to me to be the big theme that runs through this, this whole letter. Paul is calling Titus and the believers, including the eldership, to be godly. To devote themselves to good works. 
to display that genuine fruit of the gospel in their lives. And that in stark contrast to, as we shall see, the false teachers, whose whole attitude was very different, and indeed into the whole attitude of of the culture of that time in first century Crete, that island. The situation on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean was that Paul seems to have spent uh, some time planting churches on that island after his first Roman imprisonment. And after leaving the island to go to Macedonia, he writes this letter sometime probably between 63-65 AD to Titus, uh, one of his uh, close associates whom he has left on the island. So these churches that Paul had planted were most likely house churches, very new church plants with new believers all over the island. And so Paul writes this letter to Titus, giving him instructions as to what he is to do, as he says in verse 5, to straighten out what was left unfinished unfinished, and to appoint elders in every town as he was directed. And it's these leaders who will teach what is in accord with sound or healthy doctrine And they are the key to making sure that these churches in Crete are models of good works and godliness as they live out the gospel in the church and in the wider society. So I think that a study of the book of Titus will be a great help. I think it will help us as we further think about ourselves as a fellowship here in Dundee. What we're trying to do. How we go about doing it. As we look at Paul's words to Timothy, again, we saw some of the priorities of of a gospel church when we looked at 2 Timothy. Now in Titus, I think we can see more of how that truth, that healthy doctrine, will be fleshed out in the context of our local fellowship, in our homes, and in the wider society. Now there are some differences, obviously, between 1st century Crete and 21st century Dundee. We are not a new church plant for a start. We are not a house fellowship. We have a history. We have an identity that has been carved out over many years. The churches in Crete were brand new, you might say, just starting out. But there would be, I suggest, a lot of points of contact that we could look at in this letter between ourselves uh, and Crete, first century Crete. The general society in which Titus found himself was, we could say, quite similar to our own. Also, we have to think about in this short letter, there are some general principles which I think apply in every age. As we seek to put the faith we profess into action in the lives that we live, so that we live lives that are worthy of the gospel, to use a Pauline phrase, not only in this church fellowship, but in the communities we find ourselves in. What difference does the grace of God make in how we conduct ourselves? That is a very relevant question for us to ask. Not to mention, of course, in this letter, the character of the leaders that we appoint. Again, very helpful thing for us to look at at this moment in time. You see, Titus, I think, is going to be a really challenging book. It will not be comfortable for us to look at this. Because the whole emphasis of this letter that Paul writes is in that of change. And very specifically, the change that the gospel brings. 
This book, I think, will cause us to ask some awkward questions. I think it will. Questions about our own lives, our own hearts. Questions about for the leadership in the congregation. I think there's going to be a real challenge as we think through the whole role that leadership has and the example that it must set in a local church setting. But for all, and for all these reasons and more, I believe that it is worth studying this book to help us think about how, this, how, how the gospel really affects us. And is it really affecting us? And will it really affect the city that we find ourselves in? So this morning I want briefly to look at the first four verses of Paul's letter to Titus. These verses, um, apart from Paul's introduction to the letter, letter of the Romans, are the longest introduction to any of his letters. And if you, I guarantee if you read them over to yourself again, you will start at verse 1 and end at verse 3 and you'll go, what was that about? It's one of those really long Paul-type sentences that in the Greek has no full stops. It just keeps going. If Paul uh, was in a modern-day English class, he wouldn't get very good marks. Paul, in the first three verses, lays out for us, if you like, his introduction to the main themes of this, of this letter. It is the seedbed for the rest of the letter. What you find here in seed form will be fleshed out as we look further at the letter. But I want to begin in verse 4 as we look at the person to whom the letter is written. In verse 4, Paul makes it clear that he is specifically writing to a man called Titus. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus himself. But what we do know is that he was part of Paul's inner circle, along with Timothy and a few others, who had traveled with Paul throughout his missionary journeys, helping him plant churches through Asia, Europe, um, and so on. Titus, uh, we know, went along with Timothy to the council in Jerusalem, where both he and Timothy had to sweat it out uh, as they waited to, for the church to decide if the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Uh, and of course, the good news for Titus was he didn't, much to his relief. And the good news for Timothy was he didn't either, but the bad news was Paul made him go through with it anyway. So Titus, we think, is a Gentile. A disciple and a, follow, a fellow worker of the apostle. Yet notice the way Paul addresses him in verse 4. My true son in a common faith. Now surely that is a blatant statement of the obvious, is it not? Why would Paul need to say that? And why would he say it here? Well, if you look at the, the very last verse of Titus... You will see, as with Second Timothy, that this letter, that this letter, is not only addressed to Titus himself, but is also addressed to the whole church. Grace be with you. The very last verse, the you there is plural. It's to the whole church. So this letter is for the whole church on the island of Crete, all the churches. So Paul is writing not just to Titus, but to all the believers, so that they will understand that Titus is indeed. The representative, if you like, of the Apostle Paul on the island. He shares the same faith. The common faith. He understands the same message as the Apostle. He believes the same message as Paul. In a sense, he is there with Paul's authority. Like Timothy in Ephesus, Titus, as he lived and worked with the Apostle, he was now 
in a sense, Paul's true son. Not in a biological sense, but in a spiritual sense. Titus has grown up, been mentored by the apostle in the faith. He knows what it is. But why the need to say it here? That's the thing. Well, I think the answer has something to do with the nature of the false teaching that was particular, uh, or Titus was particularly encountering on, in the churches in Crete. If you look at verse 10 in chapter 1, For there are many rebe- rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. It seems that the false teaching in Crete had a very particular Jewish twist to it. The old controversy about circumcision was following Titus around. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 15, you will see Paul tells Titus there, very specifically, teach with authority and to let no one despise him. Now, why would they despise him? Unless, of course, they did not view him as being a legitimate Christian. Because he had not been circumcised. Poor Titus was having trouble with this false teaching because he was a Gentile. And he wasn't circumcised. So in the eyes of the false teachers on Crete, he wasn't as good as they were. So we can just see why Paul spells out in very clear language for the church on Crete. That although Titus is not circumcised, although he is a Gentile, he stands as an equal to the apostle in regards to the faith. He still speaks with the full authority of the apostle who sent him or left him there to finish the work on the island. So what he teaches and the things that Paul tells him to teach, the churches, they need to listen very carefully to that. Titus speaks for Paul as he preaches the gospel, Paul, uh, the same gospel that Paul preaches. And Paul, as we shall see, speaks for Jesus as his apostle. And so after Paul gives the usual greetings of grace and peace from God to Titus, he goes on to tell him what he needs to do. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But I want now to turn to the first three verses to look at the author of the letter. Paul, he says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul begins with a description of his role within the grand scheme of God's plan for his church and his people. Paul is a servant, or more literally, and less politically correct, a slave, a bond servant. Paul is in total submission to the authority and to the will of God. He is constrained like a slave to serve his master. But Paul is someone then who is under authority. And yet he also also calls himself an apostle, someone who exercises authority in the church. Authority, not only is he a slave here, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is what uh, we have seen seen before. Ultimately, uh, as we looked at 2 Timothy, we saw... Paul as the apostle, the one who is uniquely commissioned and uniquely sent by the Lord Jesus to continue the work of God's kingdom amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So not only is Paul under authority, but he is also invested with an authority as an apostle. 
He is at one and the same time under God as a slave and over God's church uh, as Christ's commissioned and sent apostle. But what does, what purpose does this role have? And that's what Paul goes on in some detail to explain to us why he is both a slave and apostle of Christ. He goes on, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The reason behind Paul's holding these positions is not so that he can go around trumpeting his own agenda or getting all people everywhere to wait on him hand and foot because he is the apostle. It's rather for a very specific purpose, for the faith of God's people, for the elect. The elect, those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world, whom he has redeemed through the death and resurrection of Christ, God's chosen people. Paul is God's slave and apostle for these people. Specifically for their faith. Now what does that mean? Well, I think... Firstly, we could say it means that they would come to faith in the first place. So that faith is initiated in their hearts. Paul is an apostle and servant so that those whom God has chosen would indeed come to faith. That is, they would hear, they would respond to the gospel of Jesus as Paul proclaimed it. And so be realized as God's own chosen people. But I don't think we can leave it at that for, as we well know, faith is never stagnant. It's not a magic card that we receive and then we'll wave at the pearly gates on the way into heaven. It grows, it develops as we're talking to the the boys and girls. Uh, Paul wrote to the, the the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He said there, we ought always to thank God for you brothers and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more. It never stays still. So Paul was a servant and apostle so that God's chosen people, his elect, would not only come to faith in Jesus but also grow in maturity and develop in that faith. Their trust in the gospel of Jesus was to increase and Paul's work was to make sure that that would happen. And we see it's not only faith that he is concerned with but also we see knowledge of the truth or reason. Faith and knowledge go hand in hand. For in order to have faith, you must have understanding. You must understand whom you're having faith in. Faith is not based on some kind of leap in the dark or belief in something that is manifestly untrue. That's not real biblical faith. Christian faith is faith in God. God who is trustworthy and has displayed before the world just how trustworthy He is in the death of the Lord Jesus. But what's more, this faith and knowledge that, uh, and knowledge of the truth that that leads, leads God's chosen people somewhere. It is faith and knowledge that goes somewhere. It doesn't just fill their brains with nice religious ideas that help people sort out intellectual difficulties with what they experience in the world around them, a spiritual crutch. Faith and knowledge lead to action, to godly action, to lives that are dedicated to God. That is what godliness is. Faith leads somewhere. It is a life that lives deliberately in service of God. Paul's task, 
both as servant and apostle, is to see God's chosen people come into the kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus, stay in that faith as they grow and increase in their knowledge of the truth, and consequently live upright and godly lives. And all this in the hope of eternal life. The NIV uh, repeats the phrase faith and knowledge uh, from coming from uh, verse 1 into verse 2. But the original doesn't have that. It literally goes from verse 1 to verse 2 as follows. That leads to godliness in hope of eternal life. That's what the text literally says. Paul's ministry as the servant of God and apostle to bring God's people to faith and, mature and maturity and also see them not only live godly lives in the present age, but hope, hope for that eternal life. Life that starts now and has no end into eternity. And again, the hope here is not the way we use hope. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That is not what hope is in a a biblical sense. It is the sure expectation of what has been promised. Hope is faith directed towards a future end. The hope of eternal life is not a fairy tale to help us overcome the uncertainty of life. It is something that has been promised and that we know is sure, but we haven't fully received it yet. So we expect it. We expect to receive it. We hope for it and how can we hope like this because of what Paul says about God in verse 2 this is the basis of our hope God is totally and completely truthful he doesn't lie and so God has made the promise of eternal life even before the beginning of time so if you follow the logic of what Paul is saying then God is unable to lie God makes a promise Therefore, that promise has to be true. And we can trust it because the one who made it is trustworthy. So when we hope for eternal life, we hope on the basis of God's character. People can lie. People can deceive us. If you look at verse 12, Cretans were notorious liars. But God doesn't lie. He has made his promise of eternal life before the beginning of time and he doesn't lie. And says Paul, that promise has been made known. Verse 3, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. At God's appointed time, this promise of eternal life was made known. Paul here calls it the word. The word of the gospel. The word about the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. So that we can have eternal life. That gospel word has been brought to light. It has been made known. It has been revealed. God has revealed it now at this time through the preaching of the apostle. And as he preaches the gospel, God is revealing his promise. That promise that he made before the beginning of time. That promise that brings eternal life. Through, through the gospel, through the Lord Jesus. God has made it thrown through the message the apostle preached. So Paul's ministry was one of preaching the gospel, of making known that promise to the world so that God's chosen people might hear it 
respond in faith and obedience, live godly lives in the hope of the eternal life that it itself promises in Christ. Paul's work as a servant and apostle was for the sake of God's people. He wasn't there to serve himself or to serve the position that he had. He was there to do what God had commanded him to do and to say what God had commanded him to say. To preach the gospel. And And in doing so, as the apostle preached it, the plan of God was taken out from Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and even to this very day as we read these words. The Gentiles would know of God's promised salvation in Christ as the kingdom would continue to grow, as Paul's message was continued to be, would continue to be preached. Take a breath. What does that all mean? Well, actually, it's all very important. It's all very important for our understanding of the work of the church, of our work. It shows us firstly... I think that the message that Paul preached, he preached at God's command. That means the gospel he preached is the gospel. Not one of many. It is the definitive article. That means that when we seek to preach the gospel, we must make sure that it is the same message that Paul proclaimed. Paul's version of Christianity is the same as Jesus' version of Christianity. Because, Paul, because Jesus sent Paul to go and teach. So we must never ever do as some would advocate and try and say that you know, Paul made that very simple faith of, of Jesus the Galilean carpenter into some kind of weird doctrinaire fundamentalist religion that Jesus would never have understood. That is historical as well as theological rubbish. And equally let us beware of a very subtle form of that type of thinking, um, which could be described as, as red-letter Christianity. You know those Bibles that you get uh, with the words of Jesus in red and everything else in black? Seen those? Well, let's never put more weight on the bits, on the bits in red than the bits in black. What Paul wrote with his pen was every bit as much the word of God, the word of Jesus, as the words recorded in the gospel that Jesus said. It is all God's word and should be taken as such. And because of this, we should seek to be a church that is gospel-centered, that is faithful to the message of the cross, and must have that message as it was as Paul preached it, as we find it in Scripture, as Titus would have preached it in Crete, have that message at the very center of our understanding of our church. Titus went to Crete with a message. The message was given to him by Paul. That same message we hold on to. And we teach it here in this place, in this city, at this time. And what's more, we can also see that although Paul Paul was unique in his role as an apostle, the work he did in evangelism and discipleship here is also shared by us today. As Titus was to continue where Paul left off in Crete and so bring the gospel to bear on the lives of the church there to see the growth, that same work has come across the generations to us. The making of disciples 
who grow in their faith and understanding and hope for the promised redemption. That work hasn't changed. It remains the same. And ultimately the method remains the same as well. We preach the message of the cross and we allow the spirit to work in people's lives. And there's a whole lot more I could say from these first four verses alone. Um, Especially about the relationship between the gospel and good works. A very, very important distinction must be made there. Um, Which was highlighted again to me this week um, through events uh, back in Ireland. How do we genuinely know someone is believing in the Lord Jesus? Well, you look at their life. What are they producing in their life? But let me finish this morning by briefly saying something else that we need to see from this whole letter. Paul had sent Titus into a society that was indulgent, that was materialistic, that was immoral, and that didn't value truth. The only truth that it valued was that which suited each person individually, the truth that I could make up on the spot. Crete was renowned as that kind of place. Look again at verse 12. Um, I think it's the, a person called Epimenides he quotes here. And it was into that type of a society Paul preached a message. He preached a message about universal truth that affected everyone regardless of whether they believed it or not. A message of Christianity that turned self-serving, immoral people into people who were zealous for good works, whose lives were godly. That was the power of the message. It changed individuals, it changed the very nature and fabric of the society as its power was felt. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and following again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness excuse me, and to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. That was the power of the message. Friends, as our politicians scramble to deal with the events that rocked some British cities this summer, they are dropping over themselves to blame the system, the justice system, the education system, the benefit system, the immigration system, and there may be some truth in that. But you know, the real reason why these things take place is not the fault of the system. It is the fault of the evil and the ungodliness of the human heart. Unrestrained. And what's more, and very sadly, the answers that we are hearing won't combat this problem. But here in the pages of this book, in Titus, a book written by an obscure man in the first century, to an even more obscure man on a very small island in the Mediterranean, we find an answer. An answer that can change people. 
A message that turns lives around. A message that can, can and does make a difference in communities and in society. A message of grace. The grace of God. A message of the forgiveness of a pardon for our evil and a restoration. A message that has changed and continues to change countless people the world over. A message of grace that makes people godly. How do we expect our society, our nation to be changed? And I suspect all of us want that. How do we expect it to change if they never hear about this? How will they experience that change, that gospel change, that grace, if they never hear about that grace? And as Titus was sent to Crete to let the gospel loose on that island, then surely we have been sent to the here and now. As God's people, we have been sent, put in this city, at this time, at this place, to let that gospel loose from our lips, from our lives, to display before these people that the change that that grace makes and so that those elect people will be brought into the church and made new. That is the power of the message. Maybe you are not a Christian here this morning. Maybe this is all new. Maybe you've never heard of this grace. Well then, can I say to you, don't leave this place until you have. Don't leave this place without knowing about that grace that changes people, that makes men new, that turns lives around. There are monuments to God's mercy in this house, in this place. Speak to them, all these people. Find out more. And if you are a Christian this morning already, well then, what difference is that grace making in your life? Has it touched your heart? Is it really changing you? When you walk out those doors and you get out of your house and your bed on Monday morning and head into work or head into university or head wherever, what difference will that grace make? That is the challenge, I think, of this book. It presents us with the gracious goodness of God and it challenges us to say, okay, what difference will it make? in our lives, in our homes, in our society. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk .org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.